Good morning. Good morning. Yes, it's nice to see all of you made it across town to the venue today. For those who hadn't heard or those online that didn't realize, uh, we uh, got notified last week that at our nor- normal venue they're having a fire department rally um, this uh, today, and so we got displaced. And so we're thankful. We want to thank the Hamilton Community Church and Pastor Dave for, on the spur of the moment, giving us a place to meet this week, and that's where we're at today. Um, prayer requests. Some of you may remember a few years ago, Christy and I uh, had our niece and nephew live with us for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Well, our niece, Ashley, was in a uh, motor vehicle accident last Sabbath afternoon, quite, seri- quite seriously injured. She's in the trauma ICU at Erlanger still a week later on a ventilator still. She's not uh, going to be able to uh, stand on her feet or weight bear for at least three months. Um, and so she'll, she's going to have quite a convalescence. And so your prayers would be appreciated. Let's go ahead and and be in class of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your love and your watch care and your mercy. Uh, We thank you that uh, we can come together and share and and study and learn about your kingdom and and support each other. We we want to remember my niece Ashley and uh, that you will be with her and help her body recover and give her mental fortitude and strength to go through the difficult times ahead. Uh, Be with us now that our, our conversations and discussions will lift you up. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly, Discipleship, uh, and the lesson title this week is Discipling the Nations. And the memory verse is out of Isaiah 56, 7, and it says, For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So, as you think about that text, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, what does it mean? Don't just give the, the, the reflexive stuff we were taught as kids, but think about it. Maybe, you know, break, break the text down. Why... Why is God's house to be called a house of prayer for all nations? Why? What was the purpose of the Jewish temple? Well, let me, you know, yeah, yeah the, 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 the Russell, Russell's going where I'm going because somebody else said, I heard over here, well, it's just for Jews. See, if, the, if the Jewish temple is to be a house of prayer for all nations, that, that building in Jerusalem, why was it so restrictive and, and, and Gentiles couldn't enter into the temple and the temple grounds were, were off, off limits? It was for all people. They, they, were, they thought they were all nations. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, what Russell said is uh, define the house. And so does the phrase my house in the text, for my house shall be called a, a house of prayer for all nations, does it actually refer to the Jewish temple? Or was the Jewish temple simply symbolic of God's true house? Well, from Paul in the New Testament, this is in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, notice what Paul says. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people. Okay, You're no longer restricted outside the bounds okay you're you're not the alien and the foreigner anymore you're not uh, uh, the, the the god's house you're gonna as we read here is no longer off limits so to speak foreigners and aliens but fellow citizens with god's people and members of god's house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with christ jesus himself the chief cornerstone in him the whole building is joined together and rises to be a holy temple in the lord and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So suddenly, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all people. Is it taking on a different connotation to you than when we traditionally think about a building in in Jerusalem? When we take this idea, when Paul says, we are being built together 
in, as members of God's house. Or how about from Peter? Here's what Peter says, First Peter 2, 4 and 5. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So where does God actually dwell? Where does God dwell? By his spirit. In his temple, which is us okay so so if you get this in mind what does it then mean god's house is to be a house of prayer for all people what's it mean pardon the way we communicate the way we communicate the how god's house a house of prayer for all people we can all communicate we can all communicate with god yes okay so in other words well Read first paragraph. Let's look at the first paragraph. And it says, in Sabbath lesson, it says, Christ's message from its inception was destined for everyone, everywhere. Remember, my house is to be a house of prayer for all people. His message is for everyone, everywhere. Early on, the gospel went worldwide because it, of its universal application, or it's universally applicable. Uh, doubtless, this concept challenged the disciples' thinking. Their initial reaction, for instance, to Christ converse, conversing with Samaritan woman illustrates this challenge. They thought that Jesus as Messiah was merely the f- fulfillment of the Jewish prophecies and hopes. Somehow they had missed the, and mis- or misinterpreted the prophets, especially Isaiah, whose message encompassed all people. Jesus, the desire of all nations, was not to be limited to a single group. Salvation might be of the Jews, but it was for everyone. Christ followers would transcend national boundaries, international conflicts, language differences, and other difficulties because he had established the pattern of cross-cultural evangelism. Thoughts about that? Amen. I heard an amen. Okay. So, maybe we should ask, why is the gospel of Jesus? Why is the gospel of Jesus for all people? Oh, because it can heal all people. My, my, my thoughts were, because we're all, number one, descended from Adam. Part of the same creation, part of the same lineage, part of the same um, uh, species, infected with the same diseased condition, needing the same remedy which Christ has provided. Does that make sense? We're all in the same boat with the same problem, needing the same solution. Because, number one. Number two, God's government operates upon... What's it operate upon? What kind of... The, of on love. And love is a, a powerful emotion or something more? Yes. I guess it would go back to your analogy to, to the same way as saying this antibiotic is applicable to all people with this condition. Yes, exactly. Because God's law are the design protocols upon which life is built. And deviations are incompatible with life and only restoration to the design it, it, it brings eternal life. So this message, this gospel is saying to all of us on planet Earth, descended from Adam, who are, Adam, who are outside the design and thus dead in trespass and sin, dying, terminal, saying, hey, the solution for your condition, you all need the solution. And it's Jesus Christ. He's provided the solution. Put you back in harmony. And that's where we find life. So the message of Christ that is to go to everyone, how would you describe it? Remember, and as you say this, how would you describe it so that the Hindu will hear it, that the Buddhist will hear it, that the agnostic 
can hear it. That the Baptist, Mormon, Presbyterian, and Adventist can hear it. You have to present a God that they're not afraid of. Oh, number you have to present a God they're not afraid of. Who wants to go and humble uh, and, and bow down and serve for eternity a God you live in fear of forever? Yes, it's all hands here. I would think harmony. All those religions appreciate in their own way harmony, although they don't always, you know, experience that with their gods. Our our God is offering a way to be to be in harmony with Him and each other. There's no doubt that unity, that harmony, that oneness. I'm just wondering how that that you make that idea come across to people who believe they already have harmony in their philosophy that is is actually dissonance. I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying, how do you make the person who's already think they're in harmony, but they're not in harmony, recognize there's dissonance where they are? How do we help, we help them with that? Well, if it, it is the gospel, if, if it's the gospel of Jesus that is to go to the world, what is the gospel of Jesus? Notice why I'm saying this. We, we, we talk about the gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke. What's the gospel of Jesus? If we're to take his gospel to the world, how often do you ever think, well, Jesus' gospel was... And they actually use Jesus' words. And so I, I pulled some selections from Jesus, um, and I thought, well, maybe this was his message. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know the Father as well, for, for from now on you do know him and have seen him. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Jesus just said, you know him, and you've seen him. Show us, it will be enough. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you, for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my, my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Thoughts about this? The message, the gospel of Jesus. How is this message gospel or good news? It's a God we can love. How many see God the Father exactly as Jesus lived. How many even Christians promote, how many Christian churches promote the Father in harmony with what Jesus just said? Let's keep going. Oh, why is this good news? Second Corinthians 10, 3-5, one of our favorite texts. The war we're in is over what? We don't use worldly weapons. We have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. It's the central issue. And Christ said, hey, the true knowledge, what God's really like, he's like me. We're alike. We're identical. This is really good news. If you were a person like me who has made mistakes in life, now if you aren't, aren't a person who's made mistakes, you can be excused from this in, analogy. But if you're like me and you've, if you've, and you've boofed it at times, okay, and you're like that woman who was caught in adultery and you're drugged before Jesus, how do you treat her? Or the people who spit on him and cursed him, how do you treat him? See, if, and God's like that, really? Think, think how different our world would be if the, if the 10th century, 11th century Christian church had presented a God like this to Islam. Did you hear that, everyone? How different would our, our world be if Christians would have presented this perspective that Jesus had to Muslims? Throughout all history, and that's How all. different would it be today if Christians presented that God to Muslims? And I mean... I mean... Or to each other, he said. To the people that, not just here, but to people in the Middle East Muslims. Right. 
Well, remember, lies believed. What is the result of believing a lie? What's it do? Breaks the circle of love and trust. And broken love and trust results in? Fear and selfishness. We become afraid and self-centered, watching out for number one. So, then what's needed to restore love and trust? You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Truth dispels lies, wins us to trust. And then, with that in mind, what is our work? They asked Jesus, well, what is the work? John six twenty-eight and 29. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. Believe it. Understand. Believe. Embrace. God is like me. This is what God is like. Stop believing that God is some dictatorial, oppressive, uh, Roman hierarchical emperor of the universe who is, who is angry and wrathful and unforgiving and requires it. Stop believing. Believe in me. And God is, is like what I've said. Stop believing that we've got to buy the father off. You see, the pagan, the pagan worship system, the Baal worship system was, you had to come and offer all these sacrifices to assuage anger and wrath in, in the deity. Stop believing that about God. John, and if, if, you've, if you have that restored trust, according to Jesus, this is what happens. John 17, 3, 4, and 6. Notice what he says. Now this is life eternal, that you may... N- that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory, Jesus praying to his Father, I have brought you glory on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I have paid the legal price in their behalf. That's not what it says. What he says is, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of the world. His work was to reveal who God really is. Our work is to believe what he revealed. Do we believe it? Really believe it? So what did Jesus teach regarding God's methods, law, kingdom? Well, this is Matthew 22. Again, Jesus speaking. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. First, this is the first and greatest commandment. The second, like it, love the neighbor as yourself. All law hang on these two commandments. What is the law of God according to the gospel of Jesus? What is the law of God according to the gospel of Jesus? Love your neighbor as yourself with all your heart. How much much do we believe it? I mean, we say it. I don't think we go in a Christian church that would deny what I just read. They would say it, but do we believe it? Functionally. How does that function? And jump to Tuesday's lesson. How does it function? We'll let Jesus answer. In Tuesday's lesson, it asks us to read John 12, 20-32. So let's jump to John 12, 20-32. We're, we're asking this question. God's law, according to Jesus, is the law of love. How does that function? What's it look like? Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request, Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to, to tell Andrew, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. But the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. 
Whoever serves me must follow me, and where, and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said, It had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. When I, But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. That's the NIV version. What do you hear about the gospel of Jesus in this passage? Or I'll say that again. What do you hear about the gospel of Jesus in this passage? Maybe I'll say this. What do you hear about God's law in this passage? The law of love described. Do you, do you see the law of love described in this text? Functionally. Do you see it? Giving up ourselves completely on behalf of others. Yeah, and what happens? That kernel of wheat dies, and what happens? You see, in nature, it's built, and then many more come. But if the wheat, that single seed, uh, uh, instead chooses to save itself, then what happens? There's no more. It ends. It cuts it off. The process of giving stops. Only in giving itself is there more life. We see it built right into nature, this law of love built right into nature. Did you also notice that Jesus is using nature to teach the truth about his kingdom? not just scripture. In other words, Jesus uses the integrative evidence-based approach where he uses scripture and science nature and experience, all three, to show God's methods working. Well, I'm going to share that same passage with you from my paraphrase, John 12, 20 uh, through 32. See if this helps with that. The, the idea. Do you hear the gospel? Do you hear? Now, some Greeks who had come to worship at the feast came to Philip, who was at from Bethsaida and Galilee, and asked, Sir, we would, we would sure like to see Jesus. Would it be possible to meet him? Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip together went and told Jesus. <clears throat> Jesus replied, It is now time for the Son of Man to have his character and nature fully revealed. I tell you the clear truth. Unless a kernel of wheat gives itself up to be buried and die, it will remain alone in solitary seed. But if it surrenders itself and dies, it produces many seeds. The man who practices the principle of survival of the fittest and loves his own life so much that he will kill others in order to preserve it will ultimately destroy himself and lose his life. But the man who loves others more than himself and is willing to give his life freely so that others may live is back in harmony with the principles of love upon which life is based and will preserve his life and live eternally. Whoever wants to serve with me in my healing ministry must practice my methods, value my principles, and follow my ways. All those who serve with me will be with me where I am. My Father will fully heal, restore, and exalt all those who truly serve with me in this way. My heart is heavy, but what shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour? No, my entire purpose for being here is to come to this very hour. Father, may your true character and nature be fully revealed, and may Satan's lies about you be fully exposed. Then a voice came from heaven. I have revealed my true character and nature, and will reveal it again. The crowd with their darkened minds, couldn't understand the voice. Some thought it was thunder. Others thought an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, This voice was to strengthen your faith, not mine. Now is the time for the infection of selfishness and sin in this world to be fully diagnosed and revealed as destructive. 
Now, Satan, the prince of this selfish world, will be driven out into the open, out of the shadows, out from behind his lies and distortions about God and God's methods, out where all can see him as the murderer he truly is, and thus out of the hearts of all who love me. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all intelligences through the universe to me. Thoughts? Did you get all that out of the passage when you read it? Do you think, I, do you think I, I'm missing something or putting too much in it? Do you think that's what it means? The evidence that Christ reveals in his self-sacrificial love drives out the lies, doesn't it? Exposes, it drives out into the open the reality of God's character and nature. It exposes Satan as a liar and fraud. All these things are happening. Any comments about this? Isn't he also on trial with all the universe, God himself? Yes, well said. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 4. God, may you win your case when you take it into court. He's and, having to prove to even the angels. He didn't just zap the devil dead, because that would have proved he was unjust, and that would have, they would have served him out of fear instead of love. He's having to prove to all creation, not just us, that he is a just and loving God. And anybody have difficulty with this idea, she's saying. She's saying that didn't God have to, wasn't God on trial, didn't he have to prove himself? You see, to those who take the imperial view, this makes no sense. This is what the gospel, according to Paul, is foolishness to those who love the world. When you have a dictatorial view, when you have an imperial dictator, it makes no sense that he have to prove anything to anybody. He sets the rules up, he created things, you do it his way or else. But when you have a kingdom of love, you see... Love cannot be coerced. It cannot be commanded. It cannot be forced. And when somebody that you, that you love and loves you has had the relationship fractured because somebody lied to them, your spouse is leaving you because someone has lied to them about you and they believe that you're a liar and a cheat and, and a fraud. And none of it's true. But they believe these lies about you. Now, you love them. You want them back. In order to win them back, what do you have to do? Who's on trial? The innocent person is now on trial, not because they've done anything wrong, but because they love the person who believes lies about them and they want to win them back. This is God, who is love. He's been lied about. He wants to win us back. He is on trial, not in some judicial court. And this is where those who oppose what we teach don't get their minds right, because they believe that God's government is a judicial government like a human government. It's not. God's government's the de- God's the designer, the builder. He's 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 built the cosmos, the reality, the fabric upon which the universe operates. And this and the and the the fabric is the fabric of love. And he wants to win us back where we freely trust him again. And the only way to do that is to prove himself, to reveal the evidence, to expose the liar in an atmosphere in which we're free. I find this compelling. Beautiful. What about you? Yeah. Yes. I think one of the reasons it's very, so very important when, when you think about it and the, this gospel of the kingdom has to go to all of the world because when you hear the most vocal expressions of, of rejection, and I'm thinking just little examples of Richard Dawkins or Bill Maher, these people who are so vocal and so caustic in their rejections, they are very specifically rejecting Christianity's God. When you, when you yes. read Richard Dawkins' list of, of all of the bad things about God, and you listen to what Bill Maher's talking about, he's rejecting the mainstream Christian depiction of God. Yes, and so we can say he's rejecting the false Christian view of God. Not true Christian, not what Jesus revealed. 
But it's almost like he's presenting in his own yes. way Christianity's gospel. That's right, he is, because that's the, the, that's the lie. Remember what it said in Revelation, it was a prophecy. Paul prophesied that there would be a, a man of sin that would come and, and would set himself up in God's temple, opposing everything that is God and proclaiming himself to be God, and, and this little horn power was going to come and was going to wage war against the saints that almost seemed to overtake it. And the whole world was going to be intoxicated on the wine from this system, so it's not surprising. And what is the wine of this system? It's the lies told about God. This, and, and, and the infection is imperialism. God is an imperial dictator and runs his universe on an imposed set of rules with no inherent consequence, and he as the ruling authority must have ex- examination, must be records to judge by, must impose penalties upon this whole human legal system that we have. We projected onto heaven and created a false Christianity based on it. Rather than the call of the first angel... What's the call of the first angel? To worship him who made the heaven and the earth. The designer, the creator, the builder were called back to worship, which in his laws are the protocols upon which life is constructed to operate. It's a much different methodology. And with that gospel of Jesus, look at how Jesus describes what his gospel looks like. This is uh, Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are those who are humble in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of humility, the kingdom of service, the kingdom of giving, the kingdom of love. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of tender hearts, the kingdom that is heartbroken at cruelty, unkindness, pride, the kingdom that mourns when it sees people living for the kingdom of the world. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of meekness, the kingdom that does not seek to serve self, the kingdom that puts others first, the kingdom of beneficence. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. The kingdom of God is filled with people hungering to be like Jesus, longing to see his face, who have developed minds and hearts which love truth. That's a key. In other words, they, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. They haven't arrived. We, we've got the truth. Set up our defenses. Stop all new light from coming in because it disagrees with our current viewpoints on things. No. The, the kingdom, uh, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They love the truth and they love to lift up others who, and care more about doing good and doing, what, uh, uh, and doing what's right than what happens to themselves. Blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy. The kingdom of God is forgiving, merciful, and kind. The kingdom of God is compassionate to the homosexual the abortionist, the prostitute, the murderer. The kingdom of God longs for their healing, recognizing that they're struggling. Longs for their restoration and righteousness and their friendship. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The kingdom of God is pure, holy, and true. No fear, no selfishness, no cruelty, no unkindness. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. The kingdom of God is a unifying kingdom, a kingdom that seeks to reconcile, to heal, to restore, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom reaching out to all peoples of all nations, of all races, of all cultures, of all backgrounds, through all time to restore oneness with God for all eternity. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is at war with the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of the world will use methods of coercion, control, intimidations, beatings, imprisonments, sanctions, legislations. But blessed are you when you are persecuted for presenting the truth about God in love and leaving others free. For living like Jesus lived, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. What was Jesus' message? What is the gospel of Jesus supposed to go to all people? You see, this perspective, how many people go, oh, I don't like that. 
when you really present kindness, grace, love, mercy, goodness, how many people go, oh, I don't like that? This appeal, it doesn't matter culture. If you go with, with the, the methods of love, the design protocols, kindness, grace, helping people in need, it doesn't matter whether they're Buddhist or Hindu or, or agnostic. It draws them. The kingdom of love applies to all people in all cultures from all time across all history. So the message of Jesus, Jesus said on 1836, my kingdom is not of this world. Is it probably important then to also remember that throughout history, throughout the Bible, God had different names and we need not to be so concerned about what we call him as how we present him? Yeah, he brought that. That's a, that's a good point. To, you know, there, wow, how do I even respond to that? There, 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 there is these, these, these movements, that, that these ways of, of fads that come through that, that, that try to divert people off of the message onto, I'm going to tell you, superstition and nonsense. You know, because there's a passage in Scripture, there's no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. Or we must be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And, and what happens then? People who don't understand what that means, name in the Bible culture means character. It doesn't mean verbal label. But it means character. So there's no other character. There's no other uh, nature. In other words, you only can be saved in harmony with God's character of love. That's it. That's what it means. But people who don't process these things will think, oh, oh no other name? Well, you know what? Jesus is a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Yahshua, or you, uh, uh, Joshua, or Yahshua, or Yushea, how some say it. Uh, and, and therefore, if you were baptized in the name of Jesus, and it wasn't the name of Yahshua, it doesn't count. You've got to go get rebaptized because it was the wrong name. <laughs> and if you haven't if you haven't accepted Yahshua as your savior, you've accepted Jesus as your savior. When well, you've accepted a false god, you have to be, you have to do it again. You see, this is this is superstition. Jesus has many labels, one character, many labels: the Rose of Sharon, um, El Shaddai, uh, um, the Lion of Judah, uh, Bright and Morning Star, which in Greek is. Phosphorus and in Latin is Lucifer, means the, the light bearer. Jesus is the light that lightens all men. That's what the scripture says. He has many names. In Revelation, it says he has a name which no one knows. So, this idea of, of name, I, I just, it's some of the silliness that divides people, and this is the devil, how the devil works. So they think they've got some real important issue, and it's not important at all. But they're willing to divide. And I've seen co- groups like this divided because someone says, oh no, uh, you, you haven't accepted Yahshua as your savior. Another example, King James Bible. Only authorized version. Any other version you use, well, it, it's, it's not from God. Yeah, that's because they speak King James English in heaven. <laughs> and because they were so um, pure-hearted when they translated the Bible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and the people who say this, they, they prefer the King James. It's more accurate than the Greek and the, and the Hebrew that they translated from. Right. <laughs> Whatever. This is why God says in Isaiah, in the name of our class, come let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white like snow, they're red like crimson, they're made like wool. We have to be willing to think, evaluate evidences, look at the ideas we're presented with, and then settle in on those things that are reliable, consistent, predictable, and in our view, 
integrated evidence-based, consistent with scripture, consistent with science, consistent with human experience. All three harmonize on those truths. Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, it says, ancient prophets foretold the conversion of the non-Jewish people, Gentiles, to a scripturally-based faith. Heathen deities, pagan worship, and destructive lifestyles would be toppled by uncompromising submission to and faith in Jehovah. There's another one of those names. Um, Israel's enemies would stream into Jerusalem begging for admission, thirsting for spiritual knowledge. Israel's commission was to broadcast God's universal invitation to the surrounding nations. It's converting people, as the the first sentence says, converting people to a scripturally based faith. Is converting people to a scripturally based faith the same thing as converting people to the kingdom of God? You guys are mumbling. No. Thank you. (laughs) It should be, but is it? According to the Christian encyclopedias, you know, there are currently 34,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible support their views. Do we think that all 34,000 are representing God's kingdom correctly? Or even part of God's kingdom? Are there some groups that claim the Bible who are actually not part of God's kingdom? What about the Jews 2,000 years ago? Did they have a scripturally based faith? Did they base their faith in scripture? Did they? Yes. So that meant meant that they were on God's side. When Christ came, they were supportive of him. They recognized and, and, and loved him. And no, they did have, I mean, they were constantly quoting the scripture to Christ. Moses said, the Bible says, the prophet said, yet we hate you and we're going to kill you. Can you have a scripturally based faith and be God's enemies? And think about that. How can that be? How can it be that people who value scripture, cite scripture, base their beliefs on scripture, and could still crucify Christ? Or burn people at the stake? Or shoot abortion doctors? Or stone prostitutes? Or burn witches? Or picket homosexuals? Or teach that God will use his power to torture and kill the disobedient? How how can they do that? How is that possible? Because, think of how, how, is script, how is it you can use Scripture and come to those conclusions? Really, think about it. How is that possible? We've got Scripture, and we can use Scripture in order to justify burning people at the stake. The Crusades. The Inquisition. Crucifying Christ himself. You know they use Scripture to justify that, right? If you believe in a God that will murder his own son, then you can turn around and reveal God to the rest of humanity by murdering them. See, when you go to the scripture, do you already have an idea in your head about who God is? God is the great dictator in the sky, or as one Adventist pastor said in the community, God is a great policeman in the sky. (laughs) And if that's your view of God, then when you read scripture, it, it, it means a certain thing. Or do you actually go to scripture seeking to understand what the scripture actually has in it to teach us. And then looking at God's other revelations, nature, science, human experience, and, and harmonizing all three. Do we do that? I think they do it. They have this because they have a wrong God concept, already preconceived. Number two, they use scripture piecemeal. They use it piecemeal. Here a little, there a little, running the text together to support the various views that they want to get. And they ignore the parts that don't agree. And they 
sever it from the other threads. When you understand God's testable laws, like the law of liberty we've talked about in here, the law of love is the principle of giving upon which life is designed to operate, the law of sowing and reaping, the, uh, the laws in nature, when you, when, when the law of worship, by beholding we become changed, not just characterologically, physiologically, we change based on what we, we admire and worship. When you understand these design protocols and see these laws, certain interpretations of Scripture are ruled out. They cannot be true. Because they are deviant from the laws upon which God himself constructed the universe to operate. They can't be true. But when you ignore that God's laws are those protocols, and they're just lists of rules, then they can mean anything. The interpretations can't be true, but the text is true. Yes, right, the interpretation. Certain, certain interpretations are ruled out. That's right. Yes, yes. Um, I have a question. You know, we talked about how, you know, him sending his own son to die. Uh, but, I mean, in the Old Testament, there were all sorts of battles that God, you know... Um, well, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people that God had wiped out. Yeah, in fact, thank you for bringing it. you ever want to frame that question a little larger? Because this is a great point. I heard on the radio this week, I can't remember who the critic was, but somebody was criticizing the entire idea of Scripture. Be, uh, oh, it was actually, it was on Fox News. Uh, they had somebody on Hannity. Uh, I was actually watching the, the uh, what is it, the 5 o'clock news hour where they had those the, the, those five people on, and they were actually bringing up a clip from the Hannity news hour, and they had some woman on there who was suing hotels to, to make them remove Bibles from the hotels because there is nothing more um, that teaches um, genocide and 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 the uh, the devaluing of human life and and the and the bigoted biasness than the than the Bible and it talked about these Old Testament stories where they were killing people and wiping people out and so this idea how it's, we can look at the Old Testament and see a, a God who would do these types of things. I mean, even the women and the children of those tribes. Even the women and the children. So how do we understand this? Like in Jericho, go in in Jericho, wipe them all out. Except Rahab, the prostitute, she didn't get wiped out. But the rest of them, wipe them out, babies and everything. Why? First off, people who look at those stories like this woman, they don't understand what they read. You have to look at it in the landscape of human history, number one. After Adam sinned, what was the condition of of the human species? Adam and Eve sinned. What's what's their condition? They're in a terminal condition. The entire human species, if God does nothing, if he just stands back and takes no action, the human species will, will, will become extinct. It will die from the universe. There will be no human species. Now, God can make a new creation, but it won't be part of Adam and Eve. It won't be part of that creation. Okay? So that species is in trouble. God makes a plan in Genesis. Hey, tells Genesis 3, I'm going to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. There's a plan to save the human species. In the Old Testament, prior to Christ's coming, do you think Satan is kicking back in his recliner just waiting for Christ to come to get busy, or does Satan start his war campaign to stop the Messiah in the Old Testament? Satan's on the war path to stop the plan. How can he stop the plan? Christ isn't on earth, so how can he stop the plan? He's, he didn't, I mean, we get some stories of him walking to and fro in heaven, but he can't go up in heaven and kill Christ. So, I mean, what, what can he do? Cut off the lineage. In other words... Will God have Jesus born to a woman like Jezebel? No. No. Would God force a woman who absolutely didn't want to participate, I don't want to have anything to do with you, God, would he force her to be the mother of Jesus? No. So if Satan gets every human individual being on planet Earth to harden their heart and close 
themselves off from God, the avenue through which the Messiah can come is closed. This is his strategy. And at one point in human history, one point, says there's only one righteous man left on the whole earth. Only one. Think about it. Think it through in this, this concept. The avenue through which God can work to save the species is becoming very, very narrow. And at that point in human history, there's a, a great cataclysmic event which keeps open the avenue for the Messiah to come. Now, some people think God is punishing sin. I don't see it that way. I see him acting in mercy to keep open an avenue to save and heal and restore his creation. Um, then, then in the Old Testament stories, after, after Egypt, uh, they come out of Egypt and these, these stories of, of annihilation and so forth. Look at the context. The first thing he says is he says, I'm going to send the hornet and the pestilence before you, and little by little I will drive them out, and you will occupy the land. God's plan is there's not going to be any genocide. There's going to be no killing. We're going to just trust me, and slowly over the course of time, they'll abandon the land, and you'll take it. Did the children of Israel want that plan? What did they want? They wanted war. So God meets them and says, okay, if you insist, because of the hardness of your hearts, on going to war, is number one, it's going to damage you. And I want it to damage you the least. I want it to do the, the least damage to you. How will war damage him the least? Think it through. If you've got to go to war, how will it do the least damage on the people who go to war? By lasting the longest millennia of time or lasting the shortest possible time it can go on for? Or if you have to kill the enemy versus the enemy killing itself. Uh, if, you're going, if you're going to go to this, this war where you're going to be active in doing it, against God's plan, which is I'm going to drive him out and you're just occupied, if you're going to do it, then get it over with and get it done with. And stop allowing generation after generation of your children to have to be in war for all eternity, I mean for the entire length of millennia of human history. And so God said, if you're going to do it, then wipe them all out and leave none left. But they didn't even do that, and so they left them, and then we've had 4,000 years of constant war still going on in the Middle East today, and every generation has suffered under it because they wouldn't do it. In America, we have a little bit of a lesson from this, because unlike, I'm not saying God led them to do this, I think it was evil, selfish men that did it, but what did we do to the American Indians? We basically wiped them out. We went in and we wiped out entire villages, children and everything. We sent in the smallpox blankets. I'm not saying it was righteous or good or healthy. But you notice our country hasn't been in civil war for 250 years. It was over and done, and we've basically been at peace with ourselves. And if they would have done that, they would have had it done in one generation, and the rest of the generations would have grown up in peace. This is one view, I think, of what was going on. Also, we have to understand that none of those people who died in those circumstances is necessarily died eternally. They only went into the... Pardon? They weren't judged. Yes. The platoons that came to arrest Elijah at Ahab's command, a fire came down and consumed them, if you remember. How do you get platoons to do that? This was the conscription. Did they only conscript Baal worshippers, or could some of God's children been conscripted into Ahab's army as being part of Israel? God's children were being conscripted too. And there was, you know, 7,000 having bowed the knee. There were others. How do we know that one of those 7,000 had bowed the knee wasn't in one of those platoons? We don't know. All we know is that they were put in the grave, but there's a resurrection coming. 
and where their heart is right, they'll be resurrected in the right resurrection. And so we often look at these with a very narrow perspective and draw conclusions about God that are really, I think, distorted because we have this imperial punishing human construct of what law looks like. But God's working to save. There's a question behind you. Brittany? Um, your explanation is the best thing that I've ever been able to come up with. But the lingering question in my mind is, we typically say the end, I mean, yeah, the end doesn't justify the means. And so do we make an exception for God and say that in his case, the end justifies the means? That's the element that I still struggle with. The, the end being what? What's the end? That Jesus was able to come and that we are saved through Jesus justifies wiping out. Yeah, but see, the, the idea of wiping out, the, do, you, do you believe that wiping out was ending their lives? Or temporarily suspending them in time? Well, I, I mean... I see them as being temporarily suspended in time. They're all being resurrected, and they come up from the grave with the same current of thoughts they went into the grave, and they continue their life based on their own free will choices. But Jesus rebuked Peter for cutting off someone's ear, so what we see in Jesus is nonviolence, and so it, it, still, it, it just still doesn't fully answer it for me. Yeah, exactly. And, and what was God teaching the people? Where did the violence in the war come from? Not from God, but from their hardened hearts. And this is what we find happening. But God did assist them because he was actually working out a larger plan. But it wasn't the way, just the same way with the foods. He gave them manna. What did they insist on? And then he gave them all these instructions on how to eat it. He said, okay, if you're going to do it, if you eat these foods prepared in this way, it'll damage you the least. But manna's better. Uh, I don't want you to have kings. But, but they insisted. So what did he do? He picked their kings, but he warned them all along against sin. So much of what you see in the Old Testament is not God's first plan. It is God working because he works under the law of liberty. He doesn't force people to do it his way. He leaves them truly free, and they're in their freedom. They were doing things deviant from God's design, but he helped them because he was still wanting to build a relationship with them. Yeah. Good questions. These are great questions, guys. Yes. As a medical person, I have a, another possible idea of why God might have done what he did because you'll see different instructions with different groups of people. One group wipe out everybody, every animal, every one, woman, and child. Another group wipe out anybody who's not a virgin, but you can take all the virgins. Another, people, another group, you kill the people, but you can have the animals. So he had a different instructions for different situations. And, I f- and he also mentions that the habits and practices of the people you're wiping out were disgusting, and I don't want you to take on any of those habits. So I feel like that also was God's way of um, keeping decontaminating uh, and not bringing contamination into his group. To the best way he could. I think that's one of the reasons the five cities on the plane were wiped out. Because even without the five cities on the plane and their influence, the children of Israel almost didn't make it through the corruption of the hedonistic practices around them. And I think this was an ex, uh, a medical cauterization of a lesion in that part of the... But all those people are coming up in a resurrection. It wasn't the end of their existence. It was only a suspension in time. The end of existence comes at the end of the thousand years for those who persist in rebellion. And at the end of the thousand years, the new Jerusalem is on the earth, the righteous are inside the walls, the wicked come up, and it says in the scripture, there's a period of time that goes by that they're building implements of war. The gates of the new Jerusalem are open this entire time. Get your mind around the ideas, guys. Get your mind around it. Think of the implications, the purposes, the conclusions, what conclusions you can draw. Because one of the allegations is, God cut their life off. He didn't give them free, the same chances he gave everyone else if he didn't kill them back then in the Old Testament. No. 
He's just suspending them. They come up with the same current of thoughts, but they come up in a different scenario with actually better evidence. They have the New Jerusalem on earth now. They have the saints inside the New Jerusalem. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open. Yet, what happens? All those on the outside still won't come in. And why don't they come in? There's not a gate. There's not an angel with a flaming sword keeping them out. Why don't they come in? And what is evidenced by this? That God putting people to rest in the grave in the Old Testament times had no impact whatsoever on their free will choices to reject him. They're lost by their own choice, not by God's actions. Amen. This is what's evidenced in all this. Yes? This is something I've been wondering for a long time. Does that go along the same lines? Like in the law of Moses, <coughs> adulterers and different evildoers like that, they just flat out got stoned, no questions asked. But Jesus taught the mercy, the love and forgiveness. I'm kind of curious how that... Because the law of Moses, that's what God said to do. I know he never contradicts himself, but I've always had a hard time understanding the sudden change. Yeah, the, what, the, the children of Israel, this is, this, is a, this is a great discussion. Children of Israel, as they come out of Egypt, what was their mindset and maturity level? Very low. <laughs> what, what had they just been, spent 400 years doing? So their, their, their developmental level on right and wrong after 400 years in slave, what determines what's right and wrong? Pardon? Say it. I heard somebody say it. Whether you get beat or not. It's right if your master doesn't beat you. It's wrong if your master beats you. This is how they're thinking as they come out of slavery. This is level one of moral development. It's the most primitive form of thinking. And this is where the children of Israel were. It's right or wrong if you, if you're, if, if you, if your master's mad and beats you, it's wrong. If your master's happy, it's not wrong. This is how they're thinking. And for the smallest violation, what can happen to a slave? They can be killed. So they come out and they think, you've done wrong. Well, what are we going to do for you if you've done wrong? We're going to kill you. And so God takes them and moves them a step higher and says, no, you can't kill for the most minor infractions. It's an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, bruise for bruise, tooth for tooth, life for life. So he moves them a step higher. No, they would kill for anything because if slave disobeys and does bad stuff, they can be killed. So God moves them a step along. And then he moves them further steps along. And then if you read the Old Testament, there's all the stuff in the Old Testament about um, God doesn't love sacrifice. He loves mercy. He loves justice. He loves grace. He loves forgiveness. Now, the Lord is a, Lord, Lord, Lord is a God of grace and forgiveness. All there too. But he has to lead them at a pace they can understand. And you give an excellent example when you say, when Jesus said, you've heard, yes. but now I'm telling you, that's very much evidence that Jesus was saying, this is where I had you then. This was all I could give you then. This is what I'm giving you now. And then he later says, there's so much more I want to tell you, but you're not ready for that yet. So it's very clearly evidence that God is just moving us along as fast as our vocabulary, our comprehension can grasp what he wants us to understand. Yes, and then the other moral developmental stages. What what comes? Uh, there's what's called um, marketplace. Uh, you you uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, type thing. You do for me, I'll do for you. It kind of gets into a work system. They went into that system. I do this, I get rights for that. Um, there's the uh, what's right and wrong is determined by the social norm. What what the, what everybody feels is right or wrong. The, you're, if it's agreed by the consensus of the community, that makes it right, and that's why that's where they went when they wanted the kings. They wanted to be like the communities around them because that's what the right way to do it. And you can see this progression up the moral hierarchical chain in the fourth level of the moral, moral developmental stage is law and order. 
and, and it's a bunch of rules, and rules have to be punished, and justice is determined by um, proper punishments, uh, um, and, uh, and it's very much a, a judicial legal system, like the human law. This is level four. This is where they were when Jesus came. But the higher levels are the levels of um, principles upon which life are constructed. These are the higher moral levels. The Jews never achieved this. Early Christianity achieved it. And they lived communally, giving, of their, giving their lives sacrificially to help others. They wouldn't war against each other. They shared uh, lovingly with each other. And this went on for about 150 years or so, that the early church lived this way. And then, then they became infected around 300 AD with Constantine's conversion with this imperial dictated law, and they regressed back to level four and below. Yes, uh, yes, Brittany. Um, I, I think a really important issue surrounding what we're talking about is do we worship the Bible or do we worship Jesus? Because I think that people really struggle with these concepts whenever they, in reality, worship the Bible more than they do the character of God and Jesus. They can't reconcile seeing the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus because they feel like that does away with the Old Testament. And I've been kind of blown away recently by that offending people to say we need to interpret the scripture through the lens of Jesus was actually, like, scary to them. Or it was kind of amazing to me. That's very, very well said. Bibliolatry. Right? The idol worship of the Bible. Bibliolatry. Right? Some, some, some also have other idolatries. Um, hematolatry. They worship the blood. Mm-hmm. It's all about the blood. Sabbathology. <laughs> exactly. Yes, Wendell. I think it's important for your comment that this is cyclical, and that there have been people, even from day one, that followed God and knew who he was. Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and Elijah and these other giants, they knew who God was, and there have been infections, there have been pandemics that have taken us away from God, but we are not on Christian evolution. Yes. We are not, you know, better than the people in the Old Testament. We are at a different pandemic. Oh, that's well said. It's well said. Uh, and, and boy, I wish we had time to go into what we were going to come to next, basically about, you know, um, there's no other name under heaven whereby people can be saved. How can this be, the idea that Jesus is the way to the Father? Did Enoch, you know, because people, the, people take these ideas that, that Jesus is the way to the Father, meaning you have to accept Jesus as your Savior, you have to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Did Enoch get baptized? Did Elijah know the life history and life story of Jesus, the earthly life story of Jesus? But were they saved through some other path, or were they saved through Jesus? How could they be saved without knowing the earthly history of Jesus, or without having baptism, or were they baptized? Well, what is true baptism? Yeah, I heard somebody say it. What is true baptism? Dunking the body in water or immersing the mind, character, and heart with the Holy Spirit for internal transformation, writing the law in the heart and mind? What is genuine baptism? Is it baptism with the water or is it baptism with the Spirit? That's the real baptism. Did Enoch and Elijah experience renewed hearts and character? Did they have the law written on their hearts? Yes. So... Paul, how will there be people in heaven who are asking Jesus what the scars in the hands are? She, yeah, she's referring to Zechariah, where she says people and people in prophecy in the future, where they'll look to Jesus and say, "What are these marks in your hand inside?" And he goes, "I received these at the house of my friends." How can they be in heaven asking about these marks if they haven't heard the story? 
But they'll be there, according to the prophecy in Zechariah. So this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 120. Remember, he reminds us that God's divine nature is seen in what he has made nature, so the men are without excuse. And then in chapter 2, he says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law, law, in Jewish, it means Torah, scripture. This is scripture, it's way of saying scripture. All who not hear the scripture, or law, it's not those who hear the scripture or the law or are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness. Wow. What's the new covenant experience according to Hebrews? I'll write my law. On your heart. These people experience the new covenant law written on their heart, but they never heard anything about the scripture. They may not have been baptized into a denomination. They were not baptized into a church. Yet they're going to be in heaven, according to Paul. This is mind-boggling, and I guess I want to bring this point to closure here in the last minute. And I'm going to have to skip a couple of points here. How was it then that they came through Christ if they never actually were baptized in the name of Christ? Well, according to um, Paul, they came through what they saw about God's nature in Science and nature. And who's the member of the Godhead who created this planet? Nature. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is the first, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So if someone learns about God in nature, they still come through Christ, who is the active agent of the Godhead who made nature, and... That's where they come back to God, the knowledge of God, and trust him. And number two, Jesus is a member of the Godhood who came to earth and procured the remedy. And so coming to God through nature, in trusting him, they open the heart and they receive what Christ has produced that restores them back into godliness, what Christ has achieved. And so they still come through Christ, even though they may have never heard about Christ. Christ is still the, 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 the way. And um, I'll close with this comment from a historic Adventist perspective, Desire of Ages 638. Those who come, those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have little knowledge of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life have fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature, exactly what Paul said, and have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and they are recognized as children of God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of love, the creator, the designer, the builder, who has written your law into the very fabric of the cosmos, and your spirit is working upon all hearts of all people across the entire planet, and those whose hearts are sensitive to your spirit can see the lessons that you've given us in nature and experience, and of course, even more fully revealed in the written word. We thank you that you are transforming the lives of people who are willing and we open our hearts to you in trust and ask that you will take all that Christ has achieved, reproduce it in us. We ask for your blessing on this ministry and those who share this perspective that you will open avenues for us to take this this final message of, of healing to the world and that you will bless those outside this community around the world who are sharing this, that more and more avenues are open, that the world will be lightened and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.